Have you ever wanted to be the first to know if aliens really exist? Well, with Nebula, you can be! Nebula is the streaming service that's home to its Probably Not Aliens, as well as our YouTube channels. And the best part? All of our content goes up early on Nebula. So when we break first contact with E.T., you'll be the first to find out. That's right, you'll be able to listen to the next episode of this show before anyone else. Plus, we post bonus content that you won't find any other place. And the best part? By signing up for Nebula at nebula.tv slash probablynotaliens, you're directly supporting the show and both of us. So don't wait any longer. Join Nebula today and be the first to know if this time it really is aliens. Happy New Year, everybody. It's 2024. Yes, that is the year that it is. That's the year. It's definitely that year that we are sitting here and doing that. We're not recording in the past when it's still 2023. Mm -hmm. It's a brand new year and you're doing great on your resolutions. You're listening. Uh, You listening, you're doing great. Yep. If this comes out on the scheduled day that we put across, it's January 2nd, which is officially the day where you do all of the things that you were supposed to do on January 1st, but you didn't because you were hungover. You do all of your resolutions immediately and you have to finish them by January 2nd. That's how it works. Yeah. So I'm going to go and work out 365 times on January 2nd and then just call it a day. That's, That's the trick. You just have to do like having a regular workout routine is for some the new thing is going to be do it all if you once. just if yeah you just do all of your life's workout in like you know like a week and then you don't, you don't have to work out for the rest of your life yep and then you ha- you pick one day and you do all your exercise and you're golden it's perfect that's i'm uh, you know what i feel like i put that out in the universe and then joe rogan's gonna pick it up or something <laughs> <laughs> you guys hear about this about this new i don't know why i went to like a, a pseudo alex jones <laughs> i mean joe if you rogan. think about it that is another word for joe rogan is pseudo alex jones so that yeah that works. <laughs> We are in a weird space right now uh, Mm -hmm. where we are actually, we lied. We're not recording this in the new year. We recorded this. We are currently recording it like a couple days after pretty big YouTube video essay er yeah. H bomber guy released his four hour video about YouTube plagiarism. And so Tristan and I are in a space where we're like soaking it in and being like, Oh um, uh, yeah. Oh, uh, like do, do we cite things enough? Do we uh, cite our sources? Do we do a good enough job at uh, making sure people know where we got information from? And that is hitting a little bit home even more, yeah. uh, even more so because today's episode is another one of our Many corrections, yeah. corrections episodes. The thing is H bomber guy, Harry, a uh, friend of mine, love the guy. Yeah. Every time he, he emerges from the woods with one of his videos. Um, I feel like every YouTuber has like crippling imposter syndrome and he, uh, he re-triggers it every time a new one comes out. And this yep. new one is like very specifically calling out YouTubers for a lot of the, the bad habits. Like, obviously it's about plagiarism and like the like blatant plagiarists, uh, that, uh, that just made an absolute, uh, travesty of like, you know, people's you know works and and, and just uh like you know the big thing is about how many like small time queer creators have had their words stolen and taken but there's a lot of other remarks that are made in the video that i feel like were almost laser targeted to 
hit any YouTube creator and make them have some sort of anxiety spiral, target that imposter syndrome in all of yeah. us and just drive us absolutely off the like, wall. I feel like the the people like us who it's funny because I feel like the people who don't care, like right, right? like the people who don't care about plagiarism and mm-hmm. don't care about citing their sources are unscathed. But all of us who like do are now in a panic spiral of like, am I doing it good enough though? Am I what what, what could I do better? What could I do more? Just DM uh, Harry. I, Harry, say I'm a good boy. <laughs> <laughs> Harry, please, Harry, please tell me that I'm doing it good. And so yeah, I don't know. I, it's funny. I've I've seen so many people that I I respect their work. And I think they do a good job also being like, okay, but like, is there a standard format that we should all follow now? Cause like I'm panicking. So we're all in this sort of weird headspace at the moment. To give um, an idea of it, Tristan uh, was a hunt the first time I watched the first half of it. And then I went to bed, woke up at three 30 in the morning, could not go back to sleep for the rest of the day because I was utterly convinced through a dream yeah. that I am a YouTube plagiarist. And that is even before the, uh, that, like that's even before the pivot to uh, what was his name? James something or other James Somerton. Yeah. James Somerton. And so like, that was just based on the internet historian slash Illuminati section of it. And so I was just like, um, but I think I, that's because like, like I think I just have general anxiety at the best of times yeah. and, and some, some, some self-esteem issues. And uh, it's being, those are all being particularly triggered because of some stuff going on in my life. So um, it just like, it came, it was a really great video came at the absolute worst, worst time, time for Tristan's mental <laughs> yeah. health. Uh, and it just was like, yeah, a big, uh, it was a big explosion, uh, for me, but that's okay because hopefully the idea that when we fuck up, we at least admit it on, uh, on the internet. Yes. <laughs> that's what we're going to do that's today. That's what these episodes are for. We do corrections episodes every three months just to be like, Hey gang, we fucked up. Yeah. We did it again. As you point we're out, we're doing it again. We're not, we're not Harry. We can't, we don't make a uh, one video per annum uh so that our one one project Can I just per- say hmm? what if what a fucking cheater Harry is he everyone's doing like their best video essays of the year list and he always sneaks in it's like Oscar season for him like yeah. he sneaks in right at the last second and always pumps out this banger of a video and it's always fresh on everyone's mind and it's like yeah obviously he's gonna win like that's it's just that's just how it shakes it out it even has he an knows- extended segment about best video essay of the year to yeah to, to like <laughs> cement does. the association in these journalists minds yeah <laughs> he does he does oh unbelievable what a what a cheater i've i i have it out for and it's not i have it out for him and not just because i'm also a bald bearded bi guy all right there can be two of us it's just it's He's so he's so good. He's so good. <laughs> he's, yeah. Why is he so good? Even when he makes a anyway. video like on Deus Ex or whatever, he triggers like I, he triggers the imposter syndrome of every essayist I know. Um, yeah, because his stuff is just so good. But we make an episode every week, and we try our. But be- I try my best to do uh, as good research as I can. But obviously, um, I fuck up. Uh, and as we learn very often, it's because of just random shit I say during the podcast. So hopefully, this is my way of saying, hey, if somebody isn't. Um, speaking from like an academic press or like, you know, a journalist yes. from a highly respected organization, be skeptical about the things that they say uh, and don't take it as gospel, um, a- including us, because, you know, including I have us. several advanced degrees that 
make people take me more seriously than average than they should. But Mm -hmm. uh, keep in mind that, you know, I'm just a person trying my best. And oftentimes in a show like this, I have to delve into a lot of subjects that I only know a bit about and stuff gets uh, stuff gets messy. So uh, all that is messy. uh, The first fuck up, though, is squarely Scott's. And uh, I want to make sure that we all know that. Um, because what did I get wrong in an episode in episode 65, where we talked about, I think this is the battle of Los Angeles episode is where we're starting. Okay. Oh, oh, this is also a podcast called. It's probably not a, oh my gosh, we didn't introduce (laughs) ourselves. Hi, my name is Scott. I'm the first fuck up. Apparently. Yeah. I'm Tristan Johnson. I'm the rest of the fuck ups. So that's the, (laughs) this is a podcast where we talk about ancient astronaut theory and ancient aliens and we debunk stuff. and, And this is an episode where people debunk us. Basically, yeah, yeah, you get it. If the, you don't, you don't go jump into one of these episodes if it's the first time you're with us. Go to a different episode. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sorry to immediately command you somewhere else. Don't stop listening to this podcast. We have a hundred other episodes, more over a hundred episodes. Listen to a different one. Yeah, <laughs> before listening to this one. So, so, uh, yeah, that 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 is a good call. Now, Scott, now, I fucked up. What did I do it, during in the Battle of Los Angeles episode? You referred to a 2011 animated film called Rango. In which you determined that this uh, main character, titled Rango, was a gecko. Uh, People have rose up to state that he is indeed a chameleon. Dang it. And the movie does draw attention to the fact that there are chameleon-related jokes in the movie. (laughs) Okay. All right. I got a, I got a, I mixed up a gecko and a chameleon. Ooh, big deal. All right. I'm sorry. I didn't know people had such strong feelings about Rango. <laughs> yeah. I literally had never heard of the movie before you mentioned it on the podcast. I watched the movie in theaters and I don't remember anything about it. Yeah. I think that we all know that I have a pop culture black hole between the years 2010 and 2013. So there is that. Uh, but also, yeah, I also have a, black hole for movies for my entire life because I am famous for being the bad movie guy. All right. So top of your list, then watch Rango. People watch Rango. It. Yeah. Don't just watch Akira for the 23rd time. Like I did recently. No, I, Rango I, I, in that one? I tried to watch. Uh, there's a little Rango. I tried to watch more cool. movies this year. That was my 2023 like goal after being like roasted for the friggin, um for the John Everything. Carpenter thing. Yeah. <laughs> And yeah. uh, I watched the movies, but then I did. Uh, I also watched movies that I'm like, I probably shouldn't have watched. Like I watched good movies. Like I watched uh, sure. Asteroid City based on your recommendation. Great movie. But then yeah. the next movie I watched after that was um, the the Witcher anime movie that Netflix put oh. out. And it was. Didn't even know they did that. Not even that great. <laughs> oh. Well, there you go. Uh, so next part, though, is uh, an interesting part of World War II history that Tristan didn't know. Now, I'm not a big World War II buff, so I'm not too surprised. But it's a thing that Did I Canada think... Canada even participate in World War II? Oh, hell yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. We yeah? were... Okay. Um, we, we joined... Uh, what's it called? We, You're a part we, of the world. Yeah. We joined World War II about uh, like three years before the U.S. did. Oh, <laughs> uh, well, it's not a race, Tristan. Okay. <laughs> yeah, can, uh, Canadians joined in like 39 uh, when the war started. Uh, we uh, a big deal because of how how silly canada is where we made a big deal about the fact that canada declared war on germany one day after the uk because we're so independent (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> All right. So what did we get wrong here? What did you get wrong here? I'll live up to my Rango, my Rango falsities. Yeah. Okay. So one of the things that I did say in the podcast is that uh, when Pearl Harbor happened, when Japan mm-hmm. did the surprise attack on the U.S. base in uh, ho- occupied Hawaii, uh, that Japan was at war with Britain at the time, fighting the British in China. I learned that that was an unfact because Pearl Harbor was just the American side of basically like a coordinated mass attack that happened in early December of 1941, in which Japan did a sneak attack on both the Americans and the British. So oh. uh, Japan wasn't at war with Britain when Pearl Harbor occurred. They declared war on the United Kingdom on December 8th, 1941, after simultaneous attacks on British Malaya, Singapore, and Hong Kong, which happened at the same time as the bombing of the U.S. fleet at Pearl Harbor, or at least the, the mm. day after. The Japanese invasion of Malaya began on December 8th of 19, or 1941, which is, I believe, the day after Pearl Harbor, and uh, okay. also invaded Thailand, which at that point was a British colony too on the same day. These events marked the beginning of Japan's military campaign against the U.S. and European colonial possessions in the region, which before had only been a war against China, which was a very big and disorganized state and was in the middle of a civil war, or at least like the beginnings of Uh a civil war when the war started. And the two sides of the civil war had to like temporarily call a truce to fight the Japanese. And then Mm. uh, when the Japanese started pulling out of China, that led to competition over who was going to what they called like uh, gaining the surrender or winning the surrender. So like when the Japanese would like hand over like a town or something like that, depending upon which side of the civil war it went to would fix things or or would figure it out. And then, you know, one side was the Kuomintang, the the sort of um, right wing military dictatorship of China. And the other side was the uh, what is what would become the People's Republic of China led by Mao. So like uh, you uh, spoilers onto which side won. Yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, uh, these, right. Th- th- but I did not know, I didn't know that uh, Pearl Harbor was part of this like well-coordinated attack that was about the British and the Americans at the same time. And Wild. I think I also recall, and I don't know if it's part of this as well, but I think I recall also that at some point Japan invaded uh, not Australia, but an island that was controlled by Australia. And mm. Australia was also obviously like a big part of that, that war in the Pacific too. So um, yeah, but I don't know if it, it's timed in with that as well. Now, the thing though is that Pearl Harbor is most often remembered due to the timing because it was first and because, you know, President Roosevelt did the famous Day of Infamy speech, but it actually was part of a larger coordinated offensive by Japan against multiple targets. I think mostly because it's Japan like, was um, kind of running out of oil and they needed to attack gas rich parts like the U, like they needed to get the US out so that they would stop embargoing oil so that Japan could have gas for its tanks and airplanes and stuff. It's sort of like um the assassination of abraham lincoln where it's like we remember john wilkes booth and abraham lincoln but there was like a whole coordinated strike for like three other people but yeah, those other like people failed parts of his cabinets yeah yeah those, everyone else i think failed uh it was only <laughs> lincoln who died yeah i think they try to kill seaward they try to kill um i don't think they try to kill i'm, I'm not gonna say because i don't know for sure but we're I'm, not gonna I, say yeah. we don't want to do a corrections episode for a corrections episode we, we always end up having to do it anyway we always have to anyway uh but we keep i'll keep going but um but yeah there was a yeah the 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 assassination of lincoln was yeah a coordinated attack on like several members of lincoln's cabinet yeah. and i think some like prominent republican politicians uh that uh that happened and yeah the president was like, i think the only one that was actually successful i think another one got injured yeah. but um but yeah the yeah, rest of them injured- kind of 
heard failed. other people, another target I think was like left earlier or something. I, it doesn't matter. All that, all you need to know is that it's all tied into some sort of secret cover up that was unveiled, uh, unveiled in National Treasure Two Book of Secrets, uh, where they find the a, go- a golden city that is not El Dorado. We covered that in a different corrections episode. Yep. Okay. Anyway, uh, next one we got for this episode for the Battle of LA is that I talked about Japanese balloon bombs during World War II. And I said that Japanese balloon bombs didn't kill anybody, but they were like a thing people were worried about. And I found out that actually Japanese what? balloon bombs did indeed kill exactly six people on the American mainland. Whoa. Uh, and I apparently also missed the opportunity to talk about an actual military cover-up. So I looked into this. Uh, during World War II, the Japanese launched a balloon bomb offensive, which was known as Fugo, against uh, the United States. So what they would do is they would take uh, rubberized silk and put anti-personnel and incendiary bombs on balloons and then just drift them across the Pacific and have them drop drift them places. Uh, Wild! The, yeah, crazy idea. Uh, the first operational launches took place on November 3rd of 1944, which is when, you know, obviously when I was talking about Japan having issue with having uh, reliable access to oil, you can imagine how that would lead to a, this kind of offensive. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> Just send balloons across the sea. Yeah. And uh, during that time, Japan, for about five months, launched about 9,000 balloons. A- about 1,000 actually even made it to North America, and only one oh ever resu- resulted in a direct fatality. And it was six picnickers in Oregon who were killed on oh. May 5th, 1945. <laughs> Oh, no. um, and here's the thing, though. It wasn't because they dropped the bombs Cinco on them. Cinco de Mayo? It, yeah, Cinco de Mayo uh, in the least Mexican place, Oregon, um, <laughs> uh, on 1945. But here's the thing. Uh, they didn't, the bomb didn't like get dropped on them. Like there weren't like, oh no, there's ants all over our sandwiches. How could this day get any worse? And then (laughs) what happened was apparently they found the bomb in the forest and dragged it out of the woods and it exploded while they were messing with it. Yeah. Well, don't do that. I'm not going to victim blame here, but like, don't mess with a bomb. (laughs) Yeah. There's even a more recent example too, which is that in 2014, some forestry workers in British Columbia, i.e. like, you know, people cutting down trees, which is a big thing that British Columbia does. uh, They found one of these bombs that had not gone off and it was half buried in the mountains. So they had to send in a Navy bomb disposal team and they did confirm that it was one of these Japanese balloon bombs. And this is in 2014. Uh, unfortunately that was too dangerous to move. So they actually had to destroy it on site, uh, instead of like preserving it. Cause that would have been an interesting part of history, but, uh, yeah, yeah. that's, that's the, that's that there's still, there might be more out there. Yeah. I mean, they launched 9,000 and only a thousand made it to the mainland. I don't know where the rest of them went, but a thousand uh, that we know of. Yeah. That's wild. Like I, like I did not know how extensive that program was. I had heard of it and I did not know that it killed six people or, uh, even the 2014 incidents. That's pretty cool. So they tried to cover up the, the six people that died. I I suppose so i guess they wanted to downplay how much how uh they didn't want like you know people in japan to or people in america to think that japan actually did have like you know hold threat over the japanese mainland um which yeah also puts a little wrench in the whole plan that um there's there there are there are pearl harbor truthers i don't know if you know this uh, there's no, a conspiracy theory They're, that that's um, annoying that basically 
it, that basically the idea is that there's a conspiracy that Roosevelt and the U.S. knew Pearl Harbor was going to happen and intentionally didn't do anything to prevent it, so that it would so cause, they could justify yeah they could justify entering the war um, yeah which mostly comes from that people not understanding how radio communication networks worked at that time uh, gotcha. and um and how time stamping and stuff works but at the same time you know uh, any large dramatic event in history always ends up being considered like a f- sort of false flag accusation yeah and in this exact case uh we see this happening again and it is um yeah it's a whole it's a whole thing uh but it shows like if they were you know trying to cover up dangers to the homeland from mm-hmm. japanese bombs then that further solidifies like their motivations were not like if their motivation was for americans to feel afraid and let us you know do like you know invade japan for their oil or something like i don't know what like whatever their thing whatever their motivation was um yeah that they would probably not have done that that's all that is true <laughs> yeah uh we're so we're moving on next to foo fighters Foo Fighters. Yeah, Foo Fighters. So uh, here's one thing that someone pointed out, and I looked this up and it is true. So uh, Spitfires, one of the most common fighter jets, or not fighter jets, jets hadn't existed yet, but fighter planes, jets did exist. They were like prototypes. Just want to, I know that someone was- Get ahead of it. Yeah, there were very early jet engines during World War II, but they were experimental and they were not widely used, I don't think. Spitfires were not jets. That's all you need to know. Spitfires, not jets. But a group of Spitfires, which were like a very common fighter used during- during World War II. Uh, there's mm-hmm. some recent HD footage of them taking off during an air show. And people have shown Ooh. that when you see like the sort of chrome shininess of them in the sunlight, there's an optical illusion that makes them, especially when flying in formation, look a little bit like flying saucers, which could explain some of the Foo Fighter oh, phenomenon. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's a, it's, and, it's not, and I learned that it's not uncommon for objects at a distance, especially shiny ones in the sunlight, to appear different because of light reflection and atmospheric conditions and the perspective atmosphere, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense to me. I mean, we've talked a, a little bit about that in other episodes as well, about how the atmosphere... And how light reflecting or refracting off of things. Like we talk about ghost, the ghost ships episode is a really good example of that where ships can appear or like things uh, near the horizon can appear to be like floating above the horizon, um, like, like ships and just, just because of the way that light acts. And it's really weird sometimes. On that note, uh, in that episode, we talked about sun dogs. Or no, that was the episode where we talked about the battle uh, that happened, but um, the 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 German thing uh, from ages yeah. ago. But uh, sun dogs are are common like atmospheric phenomenon that gets mistaken for UFOs, which is like when there's like ice yeah. in the sky that causes like these sort of rings around the uh, the sun. Rings, yeah. But uh, a, a semi, I would say, like a a person who used to be an acquaintance of mine, but we haven't talked in probably over a decade, but we're still like on. Okay, we're sort of like mutuals on social media, basically. Um, yeah, you can just say my name, Tristan. I'm right uh, here. This is author Scott. Sigler, a different Scott. A different oh, okay. Different Scott. Gotcha. Um, who's like, he's like a horror author um, who got popular in mainstream. Uh, so he kind of like, you know, I did, I haven't talked to him in a long time, but he posted a picture uh, where he had seen a moon dog. Like he saw this like whole thing Whoa. and I was like, Hey, look, that's like a sun dog for the, he, he posted the picture and he's like, isn't this crazy? And then I said, yeah, it's like a sun dog for the moon. And then it turned out that the term for um, sun dogs, but for the moon are called moon dogs. So that's great. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Uh, yeah. Um, the other thing too is that we talked about the Foo Fighters, the band, as a as a goof, 
And then yes, uh, we, did. we kind of it's all I think about when we talk about Foo Fighters. Yeah. And I, we kind of just talked about them like a regular rock band and somebody did something. And I love the way that they, they said they, they talked about it. The language that the uh, corrector used was very good, which is I have mm. to pull a Tristan and let you all know that the Foo Fighters have done horrible things. Uh, no! In the early 2000s, they supported and platformed an AIDS denialism group that claimed that antiretroviral drugs used to treat HIV actually caused AIDS. So I did not know Jesus this. Jesus Christ. And I had to look into it. Um, so the band's bassist, Nate Mendel, uh, did help organize a benefit concert for Alive and Well during which the group's founder, Christine Maggiore, gave a speech promoting these exact views. Copies of Maggiore's book, which denies the link between HIV and AIDS, were distributed to people at the concert. And uh, just so everyone knows, AIDS denialism, a belief system that rejects the scientific consensus that HIV causes AIDS, which is like one of the most extremely studied and understood phenomenons yeah. because we've been trying so yep. fucking hard to cure this extremely yeah. hard to cure disease. We do know that HIV does, if untreated or if not not managed does uh can result in basically your immune system collapsing which is called aids uh some denialists even question that hiv exists as a as a virus while others accept uh, that it exists but argue that it's either a harmless virus that doesn't cause aids or sometimes they'll claim that hiv exists and was engineered by them whichever them you prefer uh to, yeah. to kill marginalized people so that, but but yeah it's all it's all like nonsense these views have been widely discredited by the scientific community yeah and anti and so if you are somebody who is hiv positive please get please take your antiretroviral therapies because uh, people with HIV can live full and complete lives uh, yeah. now, and if they, if as long as they have access to the medicine that they require. The thing about HIV as a disease is that it's more a test of uh, a place's healthcare system and its social welfare mm. system than it is like an un untreatable disease because it is a disease that, to avoid AIDS and to avoid dying of it, all you need to do is have regular access to antiretroviral medications. And if you say live in a country where healthcare is is not free uh you might yeah. have access to said things um and there's mm -hmm. some issues of like uh like hiv positive people especially in the houseless community um can like uh still getting still getting aids and also people who are there's like because uh hiv originated in africa there are many african countries that have high hiv rates and because their medical infrastructure is typically because of the legacy of colonization and because they're not rich countries their access to antiretroviral drugs are also limited and it causes a lot of healthcare crises. So, yeah, I mean, Emily and I are watching ER right now because mm -hmm. we got sick of Grey's Anatomy. Plus, it's in between seasons. So we needed another doctor show to watch and we're watching ER. And like the first two seasons that we're in have a lot of HIV and AIDS storylines specifically about this, that exact thing about like the doctors are like, you know, this was in the early 90s. So like even even then they were they were just like, we're trying to still study and trying to trying to figure it out. But when they did have treatments, there was a lot of, you know, it takes place in Chicago. And there's a lot of people who come in in this fictional show, but based on real stuff where they're just like, yeah, you just take these treatments. And they're like, but how much is that going to cost me? I can't afford that. Um, yeah. Especially in the so, early 90s, like um, AZT was like, I think one of the most common antiretrovirals you could take at that period. And it was expensive. There was a time where if you were HIV positive, the medication you needed to not start to develop AIDS, like after possibly decades, because that's the thing about AIDS is that it can show up. This is why people like kind of question the link is because um, you can have HIV for decades before it starts to attack your immune system. And mm. you won't really know uh, unless you do a blood test because it's completely asymptomatic otherwise. And yeah. so 
So yeah, it, it's it's a whole thing. But um, but yeah, Foo Fighters. Yeah, and also yeah, I, I kind of just need to also point out that um, it, people who are HIV positive are still discriminated against fairly actively. And um, yeah, uh, for all the people who listen to the show who are HIV positive, uh, I, I hope I hope for the best for you. I hope that you can get the medication that you need. And it sucks yeah. that people treat you like shit. Uh, and I want that to stop. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, back to the Foo Fighters. They did uh, distance themselves from Alive and Well and AIDS denialism afterwards. Uh, references to Alive and Well were removed from their website, uh, but it's not exactly clear when they did this. And they have not publicly apologized nor acknowledged their previous support for these views since. Oh, they're just trying to sweep it under the rug. Mm-hmm. They're like, that wasn't us. What are you talking about? You don't worry about it. What was that? Never mind. <laughs> We're Foo Fighters. Yeah. You know Foo Fighters. Remember Nirvana? We got a guy from that. We're like them, kind of. So this is, okay, yeah, 67. So we're talking about the Benny and Party Hill episode. So do you remember this statement that you made? I do remember the statement that I made. And it looks like this isn't even a correction. It's like an elaboration. This is a, this is a, yeah, this is an affirmation that I did. This is validation that I said something correct. I like these. Yep. Um, so this person writes in, so during this episode, uh, Betty and Barney Hill, I said something along the lines of a saucer, like a thing that you would serve, like a little plate, a little dish that you would serve on a cup, like a cup would be on it. Mm-hmm. You know, people drink tea or coffee from a little saucer. The proper way in the past the reason for that saucer was so you don't you pour your tea or your coffee into the saucer and it gives it more surface area to cool down and then mm-hmm. you would lap it up like sip sip up sip it up like a little dog basically or just sip from it. So that just sounds clever. Like why 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 did we like well I talk, I, I do know why we stopped doing that. But yeah, it's it's clever because it looks silly, but it is clever. And I I I just I mentioned that like imagine the founding fathers doing that and you had said something a joke about how like well they were definitely Definitely not drinking uh, coffee or tea. They were drinking something a lot stronger back then. But either way. Drinking punch. Somebody said, somebody wrote in and said, drinking coffee from a saucer was indeed the proper way to do it. At one point, you sip it from the saucer, same as you would a cup or a bowl. So I guess you don't lap it up like a dog. Mm-hmm. I just like that imagery. It's very funny. Um, can't find a good, p- this person continues, can't find a good pick. But if you want a visual reference, George Hurst drinks it in that way in Deadwood. That's yeah. interesting. I need to watch. I never Deadwood. watched Deadwood. Yeah, uh, it's the HBO hard-boiled western show. Cowboys. Yeah, and it's got that guy from American Gods that I always forget the name of, but he's pretty cool. Yeah, uh, I don't remember what his name is, but he. I, I always know, think I know his name like. is Edward James Almost, and I, it's not him. Was the uh, see Emily and I need a cowboy show. We tried watching Yellowstone, and we got through the first season, and then we went on Reddit to see like. Hey, when does this show get good? And a lot of Reddit posts about Yellowstone start with, Hey, when does this show get good? To to be met with a lot of responses of, What are you talking about? This show's great. It's not yeah. very good. Oh, um, before we get approximately twelve thousand comments, um, the person's name is Ian McShane. Uh, <laughs> Ian McShane. Yeah. Uh, if you want to get gotcha. one, um, well, I th- this is the one. This is the Western show I want to check out when it can, becomes available to you. Uh, you should go watch Django, the show that Abigail Thorne was on. Oh yeah, yeah. I'll it, do that. It, uh, it sounds like Rango. Yeah, Rango Unchained. But there's no chameleon in it. I think I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Yeah, we haven't seen the chameleon yet. in it. I don't know. Uh, Who knows? 
But yeah, uh, drinking coffee from a saucer was indeed a common practice at one point in history. This originated because coffee used to be served extremely hot because with before like, you know, percolation and all the sort of typical things, you usually had to, there wasn't as much control over how hot the water could be. So you had to basically boil water to make coffee. Had to boil it. Uh, I guess before then we didn't really know that, you know, you can burn coffee. You have to get up to you like, burn it like with exactly water, like yeah. 90, 90 degrees Celsius, something like that, like almost boiling, but yeah. not quite boiling. Uh, mm-hmm. But they had to boil water to make coffee. And uh, uh, meant that coffee was extremely hot. Uh, so pouring a bit of coffee into the saucer would allow the larger surface area to cool it faster, making it more comfortable to drink. This practice was not only efficient, but it was considered polite, more polite than trying to sip hot coffee directly from the cup. It was prevalent in many cultures, including Russia, Scandinavia, and England. In Sweden, for instance, people would purposely overfill their cup so that they could drink from the saucer, known as, and I'm sorry, Mia, uh, already, Drikapab. Or drink with a lump. Oh, just cute. That's a cute term. Um, that is cute. In the All con- right. yeah. we need to bring back little saucers. I like this concept. I feel like we should bring it back. Uh, I bring feel back like, little um, saucers. I am a person. Okay, this is like a thing about me, and I don't know why. I, and I have to make sure that the the I don't use the adjectives incorrectly. I hate food that is too hot. Note, I eat spicy food that is to the point where it can strip paint. I have eaten you don't, thing, I have been temp- temperature wise, you don't temperature like. wise, yeah. Every time we eat like whenever we have food, if it is like really, 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 really hot, where like it's like burn your mouth hot, it'll take me like six times longer than everyone else to finish it because I'm just like, ah, uh, uh, like just yeah. Interesting. So in the context of the TV show Deadwood, George Hurst is seen drinking coffee from his saucer, which is not an oddity for the time, but more a reflection of the practice. The art of drinking from the saucer was used in the show to contrast between Hurst and other characters who drank straight from the cup to show how prim and proper and etiquette he was. I see. That's fun. Yeah. I like it. Uh, The practice largely fell out of favor with the advent of coffee cups that had handles. And we kind of just accepted the concept of sipping coffee slowly to avoid burning ourselves. That's fair. Less dishes to clean up. Mm -hmm. Fewer dishes. Sorry, pedants. Yeah. And it's not standard practice in the U.S. today, but some older people may still remember it. And in some cultures, people still do it. All right. So I like it. Bring it back. I think we need to redesign mugs. The official, though. the official, uh, maybe we should here uh, in our like list of like imaginary merch, we'll have the, it's probably not aliens official saucer. And we'll just like make yeah. a saucer that's designed to fit your average coffee cup so that you can drink coffee from the saucer with a normal cup. Just like and how if you store it upside down, it'll look like a little spaceship, like oh, an alien so flying cool. saucer. I would love that. Right. It's just like how I want to make, I don't know if you saw this, but for Christmas, uh, Ancient Aliens released a Ancient Aliens branded whiskey decanter, and I want to make a It's Probably Not Aliens whiskey decanter stopper to put at the top of the decanter. (laughs) 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 Saying like, this show is full of shit or something. Um, That's so good. (laughs) It it, it just says the word not. Yeah. (laughs) Like, like, you know, exactly. Ancient Aliens. Um, so on my list of increasingly ridiculous things, I want to make podcast merch about that. Uh, we can't because, uh, it would be really expensive and about it would be really human beings would Somebody buy them and seven of them would there, be me. Somebody out there know, make, does stuff with pottery and clay that they could make little flying saucer. Like some listener out there could make mm-hmm. a flying saucer saucer and, and send it to us. And then I could use it on every trip. I drink like tea or coffee every time we record. I would love to use it every time. Yeah. And send little pictures of it. Yeah. Uh, so we, so, so that, that, that was that, uh, love, love that little, they see, this is fun. I feel like I'm obviously you guys can tell I'm, I'm changing up the format to add a little bit more fun and context. Each one. And I feel like it's more fun 
fun. Uh, It's going to be slower, uh, but it's going to be more fun. Um, So um, speaking of butts, uh, let's move on to... Yeah. Uh, Let's talk about the anal probing episode where we got a really awesome uh, response to our talk about colorectal health, which is actually one of the parts of the show I'm the most proud of. Um, Good. So this is from me. So this is from one of our older viewers who said that today, important to note, you don't necessarily need to get colonoscopies anymore. There is a new test that just requires a stool sample. If it shows anything, a full colonoscopy would be needed for confirmation. So I looked into this. Nice. Um, okay. And I found, uh, I, I got with a yes, but with a but. This is a yes, but. <laughs> so uh-huh. there are now non-invasive tests available for colorectal cancer screening that only require a stool sample. Now, there are a lot of reasons to get uh, a colonoscopy that do not require, are not colorectal cancer screening, but that's a whole other thing. Uh, one is exactly as he pointed out. It's called the fecal immunochemical test, otherwise known as the okay. FIT test. It's a test kit that contains materials that you need to collect a small stool sample from yeah. home, which you then How send. fit is your butt? Yeah. How fit is your butt? It's a butt fit test. You send it to a laboratory for testing. The test looks for microscopic amounts of blood in the stool, which is a common sign of colon cancer. Mm -hmm. There's another one that is also very, very cool, which is called the multi-target stool DNA test or the MTS DNA, also known as ColoGuard. Um, which sounds like the worst toothpaste ever. Uh, (laughs) This combines the fit test with another test that looks for altered DNA in the stool, which makes sense because if you have cancer, like if you have uh, like cancer or pre-cancer, which is like cells that are likely to become cancerous in the future, like cancer is at the end of the day, a stockpiling of various mutations in your DNA. And yeah, uh, your, you know, your colon cells are obviously a little bit sensitive to these kinds of mutations, especially because you keep blasting it with all of those uh you know sausage particles it's apparently like uh something yeah. in like cured meat is really bad for it oh yeah that's not good mm-hmm. It's it, it, as a, as a, as a cured meat enjoyer myself, it's a very sad uh, state of affairs, but, uh, hey. but you can then test if a cell is pre-cancerous, so if it has like, like say a cell needs like four mutations to become cancer, you can test if it has like two or three of them and see how far along you are and remove those cells before they become cancerous and, you know, could kill you. So, mm. uh, instead you would do this test that would look for that DNA in your stool. Uh, you do this once every three years and it can be delivered by mail to the patient, which makes the test access basically unlimited because that you can literally do that's it from awesome home. you don't have to go to the hospital you don't have to get you don't uh, need an appointment or anything yeah yeah these tests are obviously less invasive and easier but they have to be done more often and also there's a big problem where they have a lot of false positives if the result of the test is mm. positive a colonoscopy will need to be done to confirm the presence Double of cancer check, yeah. or find the reason for the bleeding because there are reasons that you can have blood in your uh your stool that aren't necessarily cancer it's definitely a red flag for it but there are other explanations yeah stress you did one of those things on tiktok that made the guy from the emt guy just go "Mm, no (laughs) have you ever seen that i know that guy you're talking about i've not seen that specific one of my favorite bits on tiktok is just this guy who finds because what happens is if you have a bit on tiktok people can tag you in the comments so now anything that is vaguely butt plug shaped or could Mm -hmm. be interpreted as butt plug shaped he gets tagged in it and it's just like them showing the thing and then it just zooms in on him and it's an emt just being like no nope he's got like a super thick new jersey accent it's great um also every person i know who works in the medical field they love to talk about how many things they've seen in butts so uh it's it's uh people love putting stuff up their butts it's true but things that they probably shouldn't put up their butts yeah just put the right things up your butt just get don't put yeah there are plenty of good things to put in your butt and you can get them you can probably get them on amazon now so just like you know you can get them on amazon 
I was once sponsored by Adam and Eve. Yeah, we're going for the colorectal health part to be to now move into like, hey, flared base, everybody, get a flared base, flared base, get the flared base, and something that can be sterilized. Um, Yes. So yeah, um, these so yeah these are good tests. They're good alternatives for people who are unwilling or unable to go undergo colonoscopy. But they're not perfect. False positives can trigger out follow up colonoscopies. The sensitivity of the MTS DNA test uh, for finding cancers is ninety two percent, which is almost equal to a colonoscopy, which is about ninety five percent. Okay, but that's again, good. Yeah, but again, uh, because we're not the Joe Rogan podcast, we'll quickly point out that uh, you know don't take medical advice from two assholes on the internet, and instead talk. <laughs> your fucking doctor choice of colorectal cancer screening options yeah yeah don't listen to these assholes listen to your asshole (laughs) the only person you should trust with your asshole is a trained medical professional yes Mm -hmm. which we are not no okay uh we're next moving into uh the spy balloon episode so the emergency pod about the balloons about balloon gate you remember balloon gate that was this year balloon gate was this year yeah jesus all right, we have a lot from this episode. I think we'll probably end with this episode. With these. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We'll end with these. Especially right, because with balloon- I forgot about Balloon Gate. Yeah. So this one hit came me with, with a lot of um, me me getting in a lot of trouble for talking about American military hardware, a common thing I get in shit for on this podcast. You do. You do have lots of strong opinions about the U.S. military. Yeah. Uh, specifically military, the hardware. Uh, hardware and about how effective the military actually is. So I said some stuff about the Osprey, or as I like to call it, the Marine Killer 9000, but um, people talked about it. So, so somebody mentioned that in past episodes that the Osprey was a disaster. And someone said they agree in the first few years, it did have a lot of problems, but uh, now it's turned into a regular, uh, it has basically the same crash rate as a helicopter, which again, not great. Thanks. Not good. If you want to, if you want to talk about the, how great helicopters are at crash rates, just take that to Kobe Bryant um, or, or like, like what's it called? Helicopters are not a great baseline to go off of, but either way, don't tell Harrison Ford about helicopters. We will never be able to stop him. He's like, wait, they crash more. I can smoke weed and, and crash this one. That's like, uh, that has unintentionally become a bit on this podcast. Let's talk about how much Harrison Ford loves to crash planes. It's true. And also, cause I, like, I love it. It perfectly pairs with the fact that he's known for smoking a prodigious amount of weed. So I feel yeah. like those are two are related. Okay. So let's talk about the V22 Osprey, a, uh, a machine that I constantly make fun of. It's a tilt rotor aircraft developed by Bell helicopter and Boeing helicopters. And as pointed out, it has faced challenges since the inception, uh, specifically with killing a lot of people and having a lot of technical problems. Because uh-huh, figure out uh-huh, what this uh-huh, is. Uh-huh. If you want to know what the Osprey is, it's a like a tilt rotor means like it's it, like every, you've seen these in science fiction all the time. Imagine an airplane, but like on the tips of its like little stunty wings are like two helicopter rotors that they can like lift up and then kind of turn into oh, an I've airplane. I've seen one of yeah. these. Yeah. Uh, it's it's like the most common science fiction flying machine that you can think of. Yes. Um, so during its test phase from 1991 to 2000, the V-22 Osprey had four crashes that resulted in 30 fatalities. Jesus. It only became operational in 2007. Since then, it's had 10 crashes, including two in combat zones and several other accidents and incidents that have totaled to 24 fatalities. So it's almost killed as <sighs> many people during its testing as it has uh, since it came out. To be fair, to be fair, it's been like you know uh almost 20 years since the osprey has been in regular service there's that um and these incidents have led to concerns about its safety and it huh. has developed a controversial reputation as a result um, uh-huh. however the osprey is ex- 
extremely useful for some very unique things that it can do. It can take off vertically like a helicopter, but then have the speed and range of a conventional airplane once it has taken off, which makes it a valuable asset for the military. Uh, despite sure. that, the aircraft continues to be... So despite the fact that it is tricksy, uh, the aircraft does get used and improvements are constantly being made to enhance its safety and reliability. For example, the Marines have been using analytics to reduce scheduled maintenance and spots emerging from troubled areas and have improved mission capability rates by as much as 15%. So that's they, not nothing. Yes, yeah, so they have improved safety on it. And there are various other uh, attempts to improve its safety rating over time. Its readiness rate has typically been lower than traditional helicopters. This has actually improved. So that it was set at 82%, but they were able to, but the average was 53% from June 2007 to May 2010. Um, okay. So small strides, you know? Yeah. So the, tw the, the, the V-22 Hospray has indeed had a troubled history and has, but it has also demonstrated that it has a lot of potential uh, for military reasons. Yeah. And so it has been improved over time to address many of its safety issues. And so that, you know, it's one of those things that like, yeah, it started off really bad, uh, but they have, because it's so useful, they didn't discontinue it and they've been trying to tinker with it to make it better. Okay. Yeah. Uh, the next part of so no more saying bad things about it, Tristan. Yeah. Um, the next part is that I mentioned that the U.S. doesn't do smaller drones. I talked about sort of the, the meta of drone warfare that's been unfolding in Ukraine because it's one of the few places where uh, modern countries with their drone technology are actually like fighting each other because it's like one of the few conflicts on Earth where like big advanced militaries are actually going head to head through this sort of proxy conflict. Um, mm. And I said that the U.S. doesn't use smaller drones but because like, you know, um, the Russians are using smaller disposable drones that are made by uh, that are made in Iran and can be made with like, you know, $10,000 and with shit you can buy off Alibaba. Uh, apparently, the US does use something called switchblade drones that were sent to Ukraine. Mm. But because uh, there's the Ukrainians are not allowed to take pictures of it, there haven't been a lot of press about it. So I looked into this and it says, yes. The, and this part speaks a lot about um, the state of that war at the moment. So the U.S. has indeed supplied Ukraine with switchblade drones. Um, it's a loitering munition known as a kamikaze drone. So it can be remotely piloted towards and then detonated on impact. So imagine a remote control plane that then you can basically fly can into something up. and explode. Yeah. Yeah. And it's loitering, which means that they can like put it up in the air and have it like fly around until it finds a target and then go whoo and then go get it. Um, they have been sending both the Switchblade 300 and the 600, which were uh, developed by a company called Aerovironment. Uh, which is an American defense okay. company. The 300 is a smaller, lighter drone that is designed for precision strikes against high-value targets with minimal collateral damage. It weighs about five and a half pounds, and you can launch it from like a tube uh, and can fly sure. about ten kilometers to its target, like a like a really like a high-powered t-shirt cannon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's a, it, it is the most. It is the deadliest t-shirt on earth. <laughs> It makes that sound when you said, I yeah. imagine it makes that sound when you said, exactly. It's perfect. Um, then the other model is the, t the switchblade 600, which is a larger, more mm -hmm. powerful drone. That's referred to as a tank killer because it has a more powerful warhead and is supposed to be equivalent to that of the javelin, which is an anti-tank missile. Uh, it weighs about 120 pounds and can fly up to 90 kilometers. So footage has okay. circulated online of Ukrainian forces using these switchblades uh, in their counteroffensive measures, which is, is uh, troublesome because uh, the U.S. Department of Defense has not publicly displayed that they are sending these 
these drones to the Ukrainians. So the Ukrainians uh, are not technically supposed to be having these because uh, the ah. U.S. isn't officially sending them. Uh, they haven't determined how many they've sent, but Aero Environment, Aero Environment, the maker of the Switchblade, says that they are ramping up production uh, following its use in Ukraine, especially the Switchblade 600, because apparently the uh, Switchblade 300s did not turn out to be as useful as commercial drones uh, because of the nature of the warhead, which uh, is designed for a minimal collateral damage, which means that it's designed to kill like, you know, like it's designed to be very precise. So it, it, it's not designed to like be, make a big explosion so that it can minimize the amount of people who might get caught in crossfire and such. Mm-hmm. Uh, the problem, though, is that uh, it means that it's not very effective. It, it, it doesn't have a large area of effect, which could make limit its usefulness. And in a full scale war, that can be a problem. Uh, the 300s have been found to be inadequate. They lack uh, an ability to hit hardened or armored targets. So anybody who's in like something like an APV or a tank can't really take it uh, or can just kind of absorb the impact and not really take too much damage. The 600 is apparently supposed to be more effective. So I was going into the whole thing about like one of the things about the difference between like the drones that Russia is using and the drones that America is using is that the US is using those predators that have like that cost like $10 million each and then the Russian ones are like 10, 10 grand. Mm. This one, this one shows that there's at least a, a significant come down. The 300 apparently uh, can... Uh, one three one of those three hundreds uh, costs about fifty two thousand dollars, which is about uh, half a year at Harvard for a full ride scholarship. So every single one, <laughs> I always want to point. I always want to point out uh, when I talk about how expensive military hardware is. Like you should measure all of it's it in lot. full ride scholarships. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. Uh, because it has airframe sensors, integrated guidance, warheads, data links, and a launcher. But there's also a guidance unit that you have to use to operate it, which costs $30,000. And uh, there are also reports that a single Switchblade 3000 could actually cost as little as $6,000, which would put it actually lower than the ones the Russians are using. Interesting. The cost of the 600, though, is not publicly known, but some budget documents suggest that it might be around $80,000, between $70,000 dollars mm. $80,000. But these are just estimates, because obviously, for active, you know, in-action military hardware, they don't exactly need this stuff to be super public, <laughs> or at least they don't desire it to be super public. Right. Yep. Uh, I then talked now, about, <laughs> I then got into yeah. more shit, because I pointed out about, this is like one guy who sent like a really, really good email, just like completely just ripping into me about this stuff. So I talked about the good. U.S. having Thank a you. war game with a fictional Iran where the U.S. lost badly. Uh, and what they're, he was pointing out is I was talking about something called Challenge 2002, a war game where blue team lost in like military parlance blue team and war games is the is usually america and red team is whatever the enemy is uh blue ah. team lost and uh which was restarted to not waste money on training it's largely pointed out as a u.s lost and is argued that manipulation around it was a combination of trying to account for errors so the idea is that um the idea of 2000 of challenge 2002 is that uh america lost badly and then they had to reset the test so it made it look like they would win um oh but it turned out it was a combination of trying to account for errors in simulation software and the Pentagon was trying to make things look good. Um, But the blue team definitely lost. So I looked into this and said, the US has run several war games with a few about a future conflict with Iran. Sometimes it has won and sometimes it has lost, but the US has not lost every war game against Iran. Fair enough. Yeah, and and somebody pointed out that it's actually a waste of time to run war games where you always win because that's kind of the point of them. Uh, there would be nothing to learn. Yeah, and uh, and it is a mistake to put losing one as ultimate proof that f- what future war would look like, especially one that's twenty years old, which is point, which is true. Um, 
the exercise that I'm talking about, uh, military Millennium Challenge 2002, was designed to test uh, a military future transformation, which was this like big change that was happening in the U.S. military where they were trying to move, put new technologies and network networked hardware into yeah. mili- into the war system. Uh, so basically, to have things more interconnected and test a lot of you know future weapons and tactics. But the exercise mm. was controversial because Red Team, which was re- which was led by a retired Marine Corps general, repeatedly beat U.S. forces using un orthodox tactics if i remember correctly this involved like suicide like like uh like suicide bomber like like speedboats so basically like packing speedboats full of bombs and just driving them into battleships and stuff like that okay um and the results were allegedly scripted to ensure a u.s victory but it's important to note that the millennium challenge was not the only war game that had been conducted involving a hypothetical conflict with iran and there have been several other simulations and their outcomes have varied. For example, a war game conducted in 2013 resulted in a challenging scenario for the U.S. with Iran imposing serious losses for U.S. forces. Another one in 2012 simulated the repercussions of an Israeli attack on Iran and forecasted mm. a wider regional war that could draw in the U.S. and result in significant American casualties. Another war game conducted by the Brookings Institution uh, had teams playing the roles of the U.S. and Iranian policymakers and presented a hypothetical scenario involving cyber attacks and assassinations, and the results of that that were not encouraging was the, was the result I got. Mm. Um, and I've talked on this show about how I used to work on this sort of stuff, right? You did? You used to work on war games? Yeah. Shit? I, I, my one of like my first like official, official job was at Spay War. And that's what we, we would, we wouldn't run the simulations, but we were in charge of, um, like I, I only worked there for a month. So I didn't, I have no secrets <laughs> to okay. tell, but my team, the team that I was a part of the lowest, I was the lowest member of this team. I was told that what we were doing was modeling, like we were doing 3d modeling for video, for video game simulations for war game type stuff. I'm sure that's not actually how war game plays out like a video game, but that's the sort of stuff that we were doing was mm-hmm. 3d modeling to make to like 3d model cities that people would, that not u.s cities but other cities that potentially u.s might invade or something like that Mm -hmm. that's the sort of stuff that we were that i was told that we were doing as far as i know war games are kind of a mix there are different types of war games some that are more strategic some that are more tactical and often Mm -hmm. and oftentimes there's like a hybrid of like digital and real to sort of uh test out different systems and everything yeah um yeah uh, i worked there for a month and i mostly just played hearts like the game hearts that's installed for free on windows that's Aww. what I, that's what I did. So I used, uh, that's what I used the taxpayer money for was for me to play hearts for like six hours a day. I guess it's better than simulating, um, the destruction of other countries to serve the American empire or whatever. Yeah. Honestly, I don't feel bad about it. Yeah. <laughs> I don't feel bad about my time there. Cause I did nothing. I only, I, 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 all I did was, was impede the progress yeah. basically slowly. Yep. Um, another, another war game called next war Iran also was a challenge who had to um, who had to do the attacking while a non-allied player defended its territory. But uh, yeah, the U.S. did lose Millennium Challenge 2002, but it is not accurate for me to say that the U.S. has lost every war game involving a hypothetical conflict with Iran. The, uh, the, the outcomes have varied, but I will point out that it's important to point out that a lot of the outcomes resulted in huge amounts of casualties and that every point, every like simulation seems to point out that any war with Iran would be not a walk in the park and it would result in some very 
like it would result in some horrible shit happening to the world. Um, mm, so makes sense. Uh, war turns out secretly is bad. Um, it's bad. It's big and it's complicated. Yeah, um, we have a, we have like. Five, four or five more to go through in this episode. That is true. We're already we are at an hour. Okay. So we will pick up with more things that I was wrong about with military hardware in, I guess, Don't April? you fret. <laughs> Don't you fret. Yeah. We got more wrong. Don't, yeah. This is just a start um, because I just, but I, I think that, I think that the more context makes it more fun. We'll go through it slower and it'll never be ending, but I think that we I like have this. a lot more fun. I like the changes that you've made to this format. I feel like we're learning more. Mm-hmm. There's more for me to get involved with and talk uh, back at. I like it. I think it's fun. I would have never known that you had worked in war game software <laughs> development. Huge asterisks yeah. <laughs> being I played hearts. Yeah. Um, because I didn't know the login to learn how to use uh what's that soft the, what's that learning software Lydia or something like that oh, yeah. it's like it, it was like a website that taught you all sorts of programming no no one told me the login to learn how to do 3D modeling so I never learned and I just played hearts I will say uh, on that on that though uh just because I always want to say uh Lydia which is now called LinkedIn Learning uh is a really good service with a lot of free courses or a lot of courses and it's not free but I have yet to see a maybe this is because I'm Canadian but I've yet to see a library that does not have a subscription. So it's very likely that your local library has a LinkedIn learning subscription and there are some very useful courses to take on there if you want to improve it. And because LinkedIn owns Lydia, the certifications that you get on it can go on your LinkedIn profile, which as somebody who's currently looking for work can add some value to your potential employability. So it's a a useful service. Not that I love LinkedIn, but you know, um, it's, it's a free source of education and obviously we love free education here we do love that hey thank you so much for listening to this episode uh, and for telling us all the stuff we got wrong we we do appreciate it genuinely mm-hmm. we like doing these episodes we like knowing that you are listening and holding us accountable for the things that we say yeah so we are accountability it. buddies out there accountability buddies and uh a great place where you can send in corrections i mean you can do it on twitter and blue sky at probs not aliens we also have a form that you can uh, sub, uh fill out some stuff over at uh, uh com, i believe is where mm-hmm. that is um do we have a blue sky code for people i have several uh so yes uh you can so here yeah free to a good home if you want to sign up you can go to uh you go bsky social kup 5h d2 aid so there you go perfect Thank you so much. And uh, yeah, just tag us whenever you, when you, whenever you join mm-hmm. and Tristan, what, what do you, what else do you do? Oh, what else is, does your life have? You don't have anything else going on right now, right? Ha, I have a YouTube channel called step back. Uh, and it's a podcast or no, it's a YouTube channel. This is the podcast, uh, sure where is. I talk about the past and why it's important for understanding. I try to under I try to give explanations for what the fuck is going on in the world. Uh, yeah. but do, so with uh, using the past as a way to explain it, to give it some more dimension. Yeah. Uh, Scott, if Ooh, I wanted to hi. learn if whether or not Superman could reverse Earth spin and travel through time, where would I go for that? Mm, that's a controversial video. That's on my YouTube channel, NerdSync, N-E-R-D-S-Y-N-C. That's where I make videos about nerdy shit. Mm-hmm. That's my tagline now. <laughs> it's nerdy not really, shit. but... 
that's that's me. I explore um, nerdy car- shit through creativity and vulnerability. <laughs> comic books, superheroes, cartoons, all that good stuff. Gummy Sometimes candies. I cover YouTube drama when YouTube's acting up. It makes me feel unsafe in my own home. That's overall there. We've got links to everything down below. Thank you to everyone who writes reviews of this show and for uh, being a part of our year last year and mm-hmm. for listening to us and being a part of your Spotify wrapped and all that good stuff. And just, it just means a lot to us. We had, a, we've had, we've had a good time and we're going to keep having a good time. Yeah. To 2024. So and, to 2024. And beyond. And beyond. And thanks for telling your friends about the show. All yeah. Right. I don't have the thing in front of me that we usually say, oh, you know, oh, I do. It's right here at the bottom. Problemsnotaliens.com. Uh, leave reviews. Tell your friends. Episodes early over on Nebula. Nebula.tv slash probably not aliens. Mm-hmm. All those all right. things. All great. Uh, so that's all for now. That's all for now. So until next time, my name is Scott Nicewander. I'm Tristan Johnson, and the truth is out there. I mean, eventually. We might get it wrong. I feel like American military hardware is going to be the new movies, but more people know about movies than American military hardware. More people know about movies, but there are specific people who know a lot about military hardware.